0: Mary was worried that day. Did you hear it? Mary had a big problem, or she thought that it was her problem, anyways. We don't know why exactly Mary was so concerned with this, but she had a concern. They're out of wine. Ever have that problem? Running out of wine? At a, at a wedding, it's a big problem. If you run out of wine at the feast, it's embarrassing. It's not just embarrassing, you let down everyone, and Mary somehow, someway knew that they were out of wine. So she brought her concern to Jesus. Pretty good idea, right? If you have a problem, it's always good to bring it to Jesus. But then strangely, perhaps even more strangely than Mary making this problem her problem, Jesus seems to say, so what? Did you hear that? Jesus, they're out of wine, says Mary, and Jesus looked back at his mother and said to her, what does that have to do with me? That's the way it is when you're a guest at a wedding, isn't it? It's kinda nice. If you're the host, if you're in the family, you have to make sure everything is going the right way. This is how I feel on Sunday mornings, right? I have to make sure that all the doors get unlocked. I have to make sure that everything's in its place. I have to make sure all the bulletins are properly lined up. I have to make sure that my acolyte shows up, that he knows how to tie on his rope, and all of those things, I worry about every little detail. But when you're a guest, it's not your problem, right? That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Mary thinks it's her problem, and Jesus thinks it's somebody else's problem. What does this have to do with me? I'm just a guest. I have no part in this marriage. I have no concern about what happens in this place. I'm just here to watch. Isn't that what's nice about being a guest at a wedding? You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to, well, maybe you have to get a gift, I suppose, if you're, you know, someone who follows the rules. You're supposed to get a gift, but for the most part, you can just kick back and take it easy. You can watch it all. You have no part in the actual wedding and all of the ceremonies. But Mary wants Jesus to have a part in it. She wants Jesus to take up this concern as if it was his concern. And at first glance, it seems like he's unwilling what does this have to do with me, he says. My hour has not yet come. It's not my wedding. And yet Mary trusts him, doesn't she? Somehow, some way, Mary hears in that strange response of Jesus something that she can hold on to. Do whatever, she, whatever he says she tells the servants. And I wonder, right? Don't you wonder how it was that Jesus spoke those words? Was there something in the way that he looked at Mary? Was there something that she caught in the tone of his voice? Did he wink when he said it? What is that to me? But somehow, someway, Mary thinks that even though Jesus has said, what does it have to do with me, that he's going to do something about it. And she's right. For in every marriage, in every single marriage, Jesus has a stake in every single marriage whether those who are getting married know his name or not Jesus is involved every marriage has something to do with Jesus and so Jesus takes up the concern that should have nothing to do with him and he says I will provide the wine do whatever he says That's what Mary said and its wonderful words, and with that, Jesus manifested his glory. Though his hour had not yet come, though it wasn't his wedding day, Jesus acts as if it was. He takes on the role of the bridegroom, he takes on the role of the one who will provide for all of the guests. And this is the first of his signs, we're told. Why does Jesus do that? Well, we'll come to it in a minute because every marriage, every wedding concerns Jesus. But I want you to focus for a minute just on this idea of manifesting his glory. Jesus wanted to make manifest what had been hidden. It's a strange thing, isn't it, that Christmas was relatively secret. If you think about who was there, Mary was there, she knew. Joseph was there, he knew. There was a number of shepherds, we're not told how many, and they knew what was going on. And then there were some magi who came. But for the most part, this miracle that surpassed all other miracles, God becoming man, went by without so much as a headline. Nobody came in and took pictures. Nobody published it in the newspaper there in Bethlehem. Nobody was running around and saying, you've got to come and check out Jesus. It was all very quiet. Jesus had to make known What was hidden. And that's what we celebrate in Epiphany. That this secret, that this thing that had happened, that God had become man, was now made manifest, that this man was God. And throughout his ministry, Jesus performed what we call miracles, right? Now, John calls it a sign, and let's stick with that word this morning. John says that this was the first of Jesus' signs. And I want you to think about signs this morning this way. You can think about a road sign, right, that tells you something that's coming, but there's a better analogy. In the Old Testament, the prophets, think of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Those prophets performed not just sermons they didn't just speak but they would perform signs and there's one from the book of ezekiel that you might have some remembrance of or some experience with have you ever seen ezekiel bread raise your hand if you've ever seen ezekiel bread in the store how many of you have ever bought ezekiel bread it's sold as being this highly nutritious bread but at the time when ezekiel first made his bread it was a sign of judgment Ezekiel was to make that bread to show to the people of God that the time was coming when they wouldn't have their normal food. The time was coming when instead of eating meat and drinking wine as they were doing, they would scrabble together all kinds of scraps of food and eat that bread. It was a bread of judgment. Now, you might wonder well, why couldn't Ezekiel just tell them that? Why couldn't he just deliver the message? Well, you know how it goes. People can tell you things all day long. And we live in a world that's saturated with words. Everywhere we look, there's another advertisement. Every time you turn on the radio, you hear an ad. Every time you watch TV, you see an ad. Ads are everywhere. Words are everywhere. And what happens is we get pretty suspicious of words. I feel like something, someone is always trying to sell me something. And I never know if I can trust someone who's trying to sell me a thing. So I want people to show me. I want people to show me what it is that they want me to invest in. Well, this is how God speaks with us. He doesn't just give words, 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 but he also gives signs. And so the prophets long before Jesus, didn't just preach sermons, but they also showed in their lives the things that they were saying. And that's what Jesus does too. He doesn't just come out and say, I am the Son of God, I am here to save you from your sins, but he showed it in his actions. And that's what this sign at the wedding of Cana so wonderfully portrays, powerfully, doesn't it? In ways that words couldn't really do justice to. Jesus shows that he has come to fulfill what the Old Testament had long promised. You heard it It put this way. There were these stone water jars there, right? And those stone, stone water jars could hold 20 or 30 gallons of water. That's a pretty big, a pretty big uh, jar. And if you get six of them together, if you do the math, that's at least 120 gallons of water. Well, that's a lot of water. And that water was meant to wash away the impurities of the people. When Jesus comes, he takes what had always been just a precursor, Jesus takes this water that was a stood as a sign of the people's uncleanness, this water that was always there to wash and wash and wash and wash, and Jesus says, the time for washing has come to an end. I have come to finish, to give the washing that is once and for all. And with that, the water that was in those jars becomes what? Wine. The time of preparation, the time of cleansing gives way to the time of celebration. That's what Jesus shows us, not just tells us, but that's what he shows in this miracle at Cana of Galilee, that he is the one who brings the joy of salvation. That's what wine is good for, isn't it? Wine is given, says the Psalms, to make glad the hearts of men. And sadly, many men and many women abuse this good gift of wine, and it turns into something that destroys people's lives. But the problem is not in the wine. The problem is in the sinful heart. The problem is in the appetites that are out of control. Wine in and of itself is a sign of joy and gladness. And when Jesus comes, he brings that joy and that gladness fully. 120 gallons worth of it, maybe as much as 180 gallons. And that wine was so good that the master of the ceremony, the master of the feast, was overwhelmed. And he didn't know who to talk to, right? Who provided this wine? Well, it's supposed to be the groom. So he calls the groom over, and you can imagine the groom saying, oh boy, am I in some kind of trouble? What's going on here? And then the master of the feast says, everyone does it this way. They serve good wine and then the junk. But you, you, Mr. Groom, have saved the best wine until last. Can you imagine being the groom that day? He would have thought, what is this guy talking about? Maybe he's drinking too, he's drunk too much wine. I have no idea what he's talking about, but Jesus knew and the servants knew that Jesus provided the wine there on that day that no human groom could provide. Jesus provides the very best kind of wine. Jesus provides the joy the joy of sins forgiven. Jesus provides the joy of being cleansed and being able to stand before God no longer in fear of uncleanness, but perfectly washed. Mary was concerned, and at first Jesus wasn't, or it seemed that he wasn't. What does this have to do with me? But here's what I mean about every marriage being a concern of Jesus. Every single one of your marriages has something to do with Jesus. Can you believe that? When I start marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, and I've done it with a few of the couples here in this room, I always try to overwhelm them. I try to say, you're getting into something that you don't understand. You're getting into something way bigger than yourself. You're getting into something that doesn't just concern you and your potential husband or you and your potential wife. You're getting into something that has to do with Jesus. This is what I mean by Jesus takes up the concern of that marriage as if it were his own because every marriage has something to do with Jesus. Every marriage is meant to be a little epiphany, a little manifestation of Jesus and the church. Every union of one man and one woman until death does them part, that's what marriage is, every marriage has something to do with Jesus. That's what Paul says, isn't it? He quotes the book of Genesis and he says, for this reason a a husband will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And we think, oh yeah, that's about being married. And Paul says, this is about Christ and the church. Every marriage is about Christ and the church. Every one of your marriages has this high and profound calling that you are to be the place, that you are to be the sign in our world of how Christ loves his bride and how his bride, the church, submits to Christ. That's a high calling, isn't it? It has much more to do than just with who's going to do the laundry and who's going to change the oil in the car and who's going to make sure that there's dinner on the table and who's going to do this and who's going to do that. Marriage has way more to do with Jesus and the church than we recognize at first. And the world needs to see that because they need to see, not just hear, but see the glory of Christ. And they also need to see the glory of the church it usually happens that when I tell people that I'm a pastor, do you know what the first thing they tell me is? The first thing that most people like to tell me is why they don't need to go to church. <laughs> because in most people's minds, the church is just a you know, human arrangement. The church is just something that uh, you know, is there if you want to go, but doesn't really matter all that much. You who are wives have this high calling to show to the world the glory of the church. And how do you do that? St. Paul says, by trusting your husbands, by submitting to your husbands, by entrusting yourself to them. And of course, people get upset about that word. Well, I'm just as good as my husband. I'm just as smart, if not smarter. I'm just as good looking, if not more good looking. It has nothing to do with that. Paul doesn't say you should submit to your husband because he's smarter than you, because he's better than you, because he's more handsome than you. It has to do with what marriage is. It has to do with what marriage is. It is the union of a man and a woman, just like the union of Christ and the church. And in that union, there are roles to play. In that union, there are places to live in. In that union, there are things to act out. And it won't do to have two heads. You can try it, and it doesn't work. Everyone's miserable. It won't do to have two bodies and to have no head. You can try it, and it doesn't work out. And sadly, many have. In our fallen world, we've been mistaken about marriage so many times, and it leads to husbands and wives living together in misery and in strife. But it also, where it goes right, there is this little sign, this little sign to the world of the glory of being the church, of receiving life from outside yourself, of entrusting yourself to another person who doesn't diminish you, who doesn't put you down, but who actually takes care of you. And here is the calling for you husbands. You have a high calling too. Not only does the wife show to the world the glory of the church, but you husbands show to the world the glory of Christ's love. Now some people will say, well, the wife has the hard part and the husband has the easy job. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not. I guess we could have a debate. But the only reason that we could possibly think that is if we thought that Christ's love was easy. You think Christ's love was easy? Look at his cross and you'll see. You'll see the costly nature of true love. Look at the cross of Jesus and you see what real love looks like. It doesn't look like roses and sunshine. It doesn't look like just, well, we all will have to just kind of get along and I feel good about you. We're all happy, right? No, the love of Jesus, the love that husbands are to have for their wives is the kind of love that sacrifices the kind of love that does things that are uncomfortable, that does things that are painful, that puts the good of the other above the good of myself. And the world needs to see that too, don't they? They need to see the glory of the church and they need to see the glory of Christ's love. That has to be made manifest to the church. I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face and we can tell people about it until we're blue in the face, but people also need to see it. And in your marriages... In your marriages, they do. Every marriage concerns Jesus. He takes a part in every marriage because every marriage is meant to be a reflection, a participation in his love for the church. What was it that he said to Mary? My hour has not yet come. And what does that mean? It means that his hour will come, that he has a marriage that he is not just taking a part in, but he plays the primary role in. And in the end of his ministry, on that last day when he breathed his last, we see the full extent of Christ's love for his church. We see how he took our problems as if they were his own, how he took our sins as if they were his own, how he paid the price that we deserve. Here is the true love of Jesus. Here is his glory made visible, not in water turned into wine, but in his blood poured out for the redemption of sinners. That's the marriage of Jesus. That's the marriage of Christ and his church. And through holy baptism, that is what you each have been made part of. Every baptism day is a little wedding day. Every baptism day, we celebrate a little child being brought into connection with Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of the church. This is why I just, I shake my head when people tell me they don't need the church. If you don't need the church, then you're saying you don't need Jesus. Because what did St. Paul say? The church is his body. What does Jesus say? That you are members of his body. So rejoice in your marriage, rejoice in your marriage, whether you are a husband or a wife, and strive where you have fallen short to live up to this high calling. This is why we pray for people, by the way, when we come to weddings. We don't just sit here and watch, but we pray for them because the calling is a high one. It is beyond any of us by our own power. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And as you have received the Spirit, so strive to live it out within your own marriage. Wives, trust your husbands, even if you're smarter than them, even if you're better looking than them, trust them. And you husbands, don't treat your wives like they're beneath you, but love them. Make decisions that lead them lead to their good, and don't just, you know, boost yourself up. For in so doing, you show to the world something far greater than just a human arrangement. You show the glory of Christ and his church. To him be the glory now and always. Amen.